Hello, everybody. This is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast, and I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And so today we're going to be talking about um, families and spouses and loved ones of those that are suffering from addiction. And I think we need to do a few more podcasts on this because I get asked a lot of questions about families and family members. And it seems like in the last two weeks, I've gotten uh, a lot of calls from people that say that they have their loved ones that have either gone to treatment, relapsed, need to go to treatment, and are staying home in the midst of the pandemic. And have really just gone, it really gotten much worse over the, the last eight months or so. And this pandemic has really, really been devastating to the recovery community and, and people that need to get help. And I don't think that's any secret out there. And I do, I personally do a lot of work with the people on the addiction side. But the question is, but what about everybody else? What about the family members? What about the loved ones? What, what can you do? And today we're going to be joined by Lily and she's going to be talking to us about that side of addiction. And that is, you know, uh, the people that are in the receiving image, receiving side of the damage. And, you know, what can they do? You know, what what is it that you should be doing? And that's the questions that I've been getting this last week. And in fact, I had a friend of mine email me a question. And here's the question I got from this person. Hey, Mike, other than Al-Anon, is there a book, podcast, or other resource you recommend for family members who are in a relationship and the addicted member is not willing to go into treatment or attend AA. And that's very common. You know, a lot of people that need to be in recovery uh, are like, yeah, I need to get well. I need to do something. But I'm sure as hell not going to go to an AA meeting and I'm damn well not going to go to treatment. So that's a very common question and got that question from a friend of mine today. And uh, we have Lily with us. Welcome, Lily. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And um, so I'm just going to pose that, Lily. Other than Al-Anon, is there a book, podcast, or other resource you recommend for family members who are in a relationship and the addicted member is not willing to go into treatment? So just just let that simmer for a second and give us your thoughts on that. So I'm sure you get that question a lot too, don't you? I do. And it's interesting that you said other than Al-Anon because I've been going to Al-Anon since, since 2004. So I'm... A lot of the tools in the program are are ingrained in me, and so they. It's not that I apply all of them, but I I just seem to know them in my head, and and hopefully when that time and comes where I need to apply them, or when I'm talking to other people, the principles just kind of are are part of me in a lot of respects. But so without throwing out the word Al-Anon, I'm just going to talk about those principles maybe pulling from that program and other other things that, that that I've used in my own life, especially having lived and living with with someone who who lives with addiction. So let me just start by saying that, you know, there's that analogy that when an airplane is flying and the stewardess are, are, you know, walking you through what you need to do in order to stay safe in the airplane, they'll always say that when when the oxygen mask comes down, they say, make sure that you apply it to yourself first before you put one on your child. So I would liken that. Yeah, take care of yourself first. 
Right. Take your take care of yourself first. So a lot of people that I know that will come to me and, and I'll get a, a very similar question. They'll ask, what should I do? I, I can't force my loved one into treatment or my loved one continues to relapse. What do I do? And usually by the time they get to me and they're talking, they're, they're in, in a dire situation. Either they're on the verge of divorce or they're wanting to leave right away and something they're in a crisis mode. And so for me, I usually will let them talk and and tell their story because many times they've bottled up this information and they've been living with us for many years, months, and, and they've never spoken it with anyone. And so you want to, you know, I want to give them that opportunity to unload and just express themselves and feel the emotions. And, and I mean, cause they're in a lot of pl- uh, pain. So you want them to be able to get those emotions out because it's healthy for them. Um, so the first thing I normally ask is, well, how do you feel? How are you feeling? Where are you? In, in all of this because lots of times they've been so obsessed with their loved one trying to get their loved one to get better that they've allowed their health to go they're not eating right yeah. they're not sleeping they're they are also in such a state that they are so exhausted so that's usually once i let them tell their story that's the first thing i want to know is how are they taking care of themselves because we do you know we do tend to let ourselves go and that was my situation is when i when my alcoholic, you know, was, was relapsing or, or not in recovery yet. I definitely was so obsessed with him that I was a walking zombie. I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't exercising. I wasn't eating. Um, and if I was doing those things, my emotionally in my mind, I certainly wasn't thinking about self-care. So that's the first thing I wanted. I want to know is how well are they are they taking care of themselves? Because really, quite frankly, if the alcoholic or the addict refuses to get help of any kind, there's very little that you can do. You know, they always say, when you, you know, you could draw a horse to water, but then you can't force it to drink. Mm-hmm. It's almost like how it is with an alcoholic. So if a loved one chooses to re- remain in that relationship, there's not really a lot of things that you can do other than take care of yourself or leave the situation. There's, there's really nothing. It's out of your control. And that's that's not what they want to hear, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's really not what I wanted to hear. They always think they can fix the other person. Right. They do. And it's very, it's it's defeating. You feel very hopeless and you feel out of control and you feel like I did. I, I felt like I was a failure. Mm-hmm. And so because lot- it's about you. You've made their addiction about you. Well, I don't know if I would. I think that there's a martyrdom done. I don't think that from the person who loves that person who's suffering, they, that they feel that it's all about me. Um, is that what you're saying? I- no, I, I think what it is, I think people think that there's something that they can do to change the, the other person, right? They, they think that if I do this, he or she will get sober. And if they don't get sober, somehow I'm. A, I mean, it seems like I I hear that a lot from people. If if I do this and you don't get sober, then I'm not doing it right. Or there's something that I, that's what I mean by you make it about you, and that that there's something that you can do to make the other person sober. 
And and I don't know that that's possible. I, I think it has to be that that person. Now, you let's see if you agree with me on this. You can lead the way. You can provide materials. You can point in the direction to get well. But at the end of the day, that person needs to want to get well. That's true. But I think the frustrating part for the loved one is, you know, most people... You know, if you get a cut on your finger, you're going to go get a Band-Aid. If you feel sick and you can't heal yourself, you're going to go to the doctor. But why is it when you're dealing with an alcoholic who has a very, very serious disease, chooses to not get treatment, not go to the doctor, not and, and tries to either heal themselves or choose not to do anything about it. That is extremely frustrating yeah. for a loved one. And it seems to be unique to addiction, isn't it? It's really the there's a lot of things about addiction that don't apply to other diseases or we don't apply like we would other diseases. For example, like you said, nobody would have cancer and not go to the doctor. Nobody would have diabetes. Nobody would have other like you said broke if you have broken bones or a serious cut you would not even hesitate to go get help and, and go see a doctor, seek treatment. It's only in addiction that we seem to be absolutely adverse to doing the things that the medical community says that we should do. It seems to be unique to this disease. I agree with you to a point, Mike. I think that there are people who suffer from diabetes, who not not type 1, where their body doesn't you know produce insulin anymore. But there are plenty of people out there that mm-hmm. have type 2 diabetes who continue to yeah. eat the way they want to eat and then continue to rely on medication that the doctor may say, if you just cut back, you can control your diet, control your diet. You know, if you control your diet, control the amount of sugar that you're eating, you can live without the medication. Right. The same thing is when someone has cancer. There are plenty of people who've died from cancer who refuse to get treatment. And then by the time they succumb... They start having symptoms. Then they go to the doctor and the doctor says, too late. It's spread yeah. to your brain. You know, you're, you're done. So even in those diseases, there is, there is, there are folks who don't get um, treatment. I think that for me. But it doesn't end well for them. Right. <laughs> Just like an addiction, it does not end Absolutely. well for you. Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't end well with you. But the other component, I would say, that is unique to addiction is the amount of devastation. When an addict or an alcoholic um, is in the throes of their addiction, like an alcoholic, you know, most, not all alcoholics, but they like to get behind a car and drive with family members in the car. If Plus everybody else that's on the road. Yeah, so they, yeah. they present themselves not only a danger to them, themselves, but they present a danger to everyone else around them. Someone who has cancer and they refuse to have treatment you know, they're not going to, you know, they get behind a car. They're not all over the road and creating havoc. It's it's the repercussions because of their addiction that's mind-altering. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. It's the mind-altering part. Yeah. Well, so what would you say to this individual that sent the email today? Obviously, they're looking for something other than Al-Anon. Right. Otherwise, we wouldn't we wouldn't have the question. So I don't want to go to Al-Anon, but I know that something needs to be done. So what resources are? So if there's somebody that is absolutely adverse to Al-Anon and maybe start with why do you think somebody wouldn't want to go to Al-Anon 
And if you're not going to do that, what else could you do in that regard? So, so I, what, what's the problem with Al-Anon? Okay, why would somebody even ask that question? Well, that's a good question. I think that some folks who've gone to Al-Anon and don't like it, I think that because I was saying most people who go to Al-Anon, just like I did, you're already at your wit's end. You go to this meeting and they're all talking about their their situation and then they're talking about these tools they've applied and everything is geared toward themselves and you're like, I just came here to have someone tell me what to do. How can I make my loved one? They think they're gonna be given an instruction manual on yes. how to make that person well. Right. I'm right. I went there to say, you know what, I came here to solve my problem. You guys are talking about yourselves. What good are you? And so I went to a couple of meetings, not wondering, you know, kind of like, okay, where am I and why are these people talking to themselves? But I think people misunderstand that Al-Anon is a support group. It's not like going to a counselor. It's people who are going through very similar things that that may not be exactly what you're going through, but they're, they're trudging in this world and they're sharing their experience of strength and hope. And they're all at varying degrees of crisis, but they're just coming alongside of each other and they have one thing in common. They have a loved one who's suffering from alcoholism. It's a support group. There might be professionals. Some of them are what we call open meetings that people can arrive and, and you know, they want to get information about it, but it's a support group. But I would say that if someone is truly in a crisis and that they need advice, mm-hmm. The, the Al-Anon community is not against anyone going to see a professional counselor. They are, when I, when I was in my crisis mode, I went to a support group and then I too felt like I wasn't getting enough. So I, I reached out and I found a professional licensed counselor who, who happened to be familiar with Al-Anon. But since she had that additional training, she understood about addiction. She was able to answer all, a lot in a lot more intense detail or in-depth detail about what was what is the disease of alcoholism how is it affecting my loved one she was the one that referred me to some good books that I could read that um I mean we have Al-Anon literature but I mean more from a medical perspective because alcoholism is a disease so it it um she helped me and pointed me to some good literature and some good resources but then she also like, you know, in, in the support meetings, you know, you, you know, they let you talk for maybe three to five minutes. You know, you want to give equal time to give everyone an opportunity to speak. Well, when I pay somebody money to listen to me, my counselor would let me go for 40 minutes. And, mm-hmm. then, and then after 40 minutes, maybe she would interject once in a while. But towards the end, she would take in all that I was saying and then say, Lily, you know, based on what you were saying, you know, this is what I would recommend. Right. And she did call out a lot of things that I would never get from a sponsor, from a fellow person in a meeting that was extremely helpful. And actually, you know, I think I think the last survey that I looked at that because Al-Anon will do surveys and everything, of course, is, you know, voluntary and all that stuff. So, you know, the statistics and all that aren't as great in that program since it's. It's it's not they're not because it's a very anonymous program. Yeah, and it's you, not, you, you right. can't really do an empirical study of right. Al-Anon or AA. Not it's just purpose. not designed for right. that. That's yeah. not its purpose. Its purpose yeah. is to help families. It's not to show a bunch of statistics to prove how great we are. No. That, that's not the purpose. And so, but I read in there that they were saying that of the members who volunteered to 
to answer the survey said 70% of them actually had seen a professional counselor. Hmm. Uh, 70%? Um, <clears throat> and I think it's, I think what I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying too that it, it's probably a good idea to not only attend Al-Anon uh, or any other program, and by the way, not just Al-Anon, but, but a support program, a support program, and see a professional counselor at the same time. So if you're listening to this first, to the first time and you've never been to these meetings or you don't know what we're talking about, keep in mind, this is a support network, which is very different than seeing a licensed professional counselor. Both serve very good roles, but they're very different roles, very different roles, and they serve different purposes. And I think that that's an important to, to understand. The other thing that I did, Mike, that I think that really helped me was, now in this particular case, this is, this is a person whose loved one is refusing to get treatment. So, And that was basically the question that we got today. Right. So I, yeah. I um, you know, a lot of the resources I got, you know, I got it through my counselor. Another where a place where I got a lot of the resources in my particular cases, my husband actually did go for treatment. And the treatment place that he went offered a really good family program. And it was taught by licensed counselors and um, all the families who had someone who was there. And so that was extremely helpful is there are, I don't know whether or not those treatment places have programs specifically for the family members where, where, where the addict is not there, but they, but they have outreach programs to families because you know, they specialize in addiction. Um, because sometimes whenever you go on the internet, to be honest, there's just a whole gamut of information out there. You, you, it's It may or may not be trustworthy. Yeah. But if I went to a treatment center and they specialize in addiction and they have a family program, and for me, I, I accept the fact that alcoholism is a disease. And so if it's a disease that it needs to be treated like a disease. Oh, yeah. And your yeah. understanding of it has to be from a, de- a disease perspective. And so that was extremely helpful for me to understand what is my loved one going through when they're under the throes of their addiction? How is it affecting them emotionally, physically, <clears throat> spiritually, psychologically? And when I was able to really understand how they were being affected, like we were talking about earlier you know why is why is it, why is it that an alcoholic is so they're so illogical that it's extremely frustrating for the loved one well when they've got all that alcohol in their brain they're not they're just they got a, a poison in their brain that's affecting the way they think mm-hmm. so they're not thinking very logically well i'm completely stone cold sober and i'm a very logical person so instead of me engaging my alcoholic when they were being illogical, that, that makes absolutely no sense <laughs> to, to be trying to have a logical conversation with someone who's not in the right frame of mind. So then I knew that when my husband was drinking, instead of trying to argue with him and try to prove my point, at that time I had to just disengage. Not that I right. didn't want to, but that I had no choice. In fact, uh, for people that are listening, um, the probably the worst time for you to confront your person that's in the midst of their addiction is while they're using. It's pointless. 
you know, it, it's pointless to you for you to lecture your husband when he comes home or your wife when she comes home or whatever your situation is while they're under the influence and try to have that that deep conversation. In fact, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous actually advises against that. You you have that conversation when they are not under the influence because it's pointless, isn't it? You've done that before. I know you've told me stories about how you tried to engage your husband while he was under the influence and and it's pointless, isn't it? It is pointless, but I mean, but if you but I think that, you know, going back to you love this person. You want what's best for them. And so you think that it is your duty, your responsibility to help them. And then when you feel so hopeless, you you really feel like a failure. And so I I think that we we set this expectation upon ourselves that we think it's our responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that I had to come to a point where it wasn't my responsibility. Uh, in my particular case, I had the two kids. Um, you know, the alcoholic, even though they're in the throes of their addiction, they're still an adult. They're not, they may be acting like a child. I may be thinking they're a child. But in reality, I had to come to the acceptance that they're going to do what they want to do. And I, I had to, personally, I had to try to set boundaries around myself as far as what I could and could not accept when it came to the alcoholic. But what I did do is like you had mentioned is I stopped engaging them when they were under the influence. Mm-hmm. It, it really was a waste of my effort. It, it made me go nuts. I, you know, I felt like I was, and it's not effective. It wasn't. Effective. It's not effective at all. It wasn't effective. I think that that's that's first and foremost, you need to understand it may make you feel good. It may make you feel like you've gotten into this off your chest, but it's not effective. Um, they're not processing the information. And the next day, it's quite possible, depending on how intoxicated they were, they don't even remember that you had the conversation the night before. So it's not effective, mm-hmm. right? And just let me just side note that there for a second, that there's a lot of reasons why uh, your loved one, if, if it seems like they're acting crazy, it's because they there's there's a lot physiologically going on. You have to understand that when we're talking about alcohol here, because that's where this, this question was based on. Um, with alcohol, there's a lot of things that are happening in the body that cause your loved one to act sort of crazy if they ask cra- act crazy. The B series of vitamins are not even absorbed into the body, 1, 3, 6, and 12, which has to do with neurological functioning. That's depleted. And so um, that that affects the, the, the thought process, really affects the prefrontal cortex of the brain, and so they're not acting rationally. And even in early recovery, that has to be restored, and it takes time for that to be restored. So it's not necessarily that your loved one is crazy, uh, meaning clinically crazy. It means that that there's things that are happening in their body due to their use that has to be corrected. And that's why treatment, just like you said, Lily, this is a disease. It has to be treated like a disease, and there's things that you have to do. Um, so first and foremost, they have to be pointed towards some sort of treatment in getting well, but, but, but by all means, they have to stop using. And, you know, but again, this comes down to when in addiction, everything is focused on the addict. Okay. Everything's focused on the addict. So, but what I'm hearing from you is what you're saying is that other than education, support, and pointing the direction of what the, the loved one needs to do, 
What you're saying is really you need, and it's difficult to do, but you need to get the focus back on yourself if you're the loved one and take care of you. Because if you're not well, um, if you're not well, you're not going to be in a position where you can help them. And then, but remember too, many, many of the people out there listening have families, they have children, they have maybe other people that are dependent upon them. But so your addict is basically disabled, but you're disabled at the same time, right? So I think that goes back to the analogy where you put the oxygen mask on yourself, take care of yourself, and then you can take care of others. Because it may be, it may be, and you have to be willing to understand that you may not be able to ever do anything about your addict, but it's like that there are other people in your life that depend on you. That's correct. Right? So what you I might have to. I agree with you. So what are some things that I did <clears throat> to take care of myself, regardless of what was going on with the addict or, or the alcoholic? In my particular case, I had to be cognizant of, you know, how am I eating and Am I exercising? Am I, I have a responsibility to my own children, so I can control that. So putting my time and attention on my children. If someone weren't, didn't want to go to Al-Anon, is there another support group, someone that they can call, that they trust, that they have an opportunity that when they're in a crisis mode, they have at least someone who understands their situation, whether it be a professional counselor or a friend or someone that Church, they can, synagogue, yeah, things right, like that. Right, someone yeah. that they can reach out to so that they can get it off their chest so that they're not mulling over it and then it's, 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 they're being self, I mean, they're being totally obsessed about their loved one. They've got to get their mind off of that person to give them some mental relief. They can journal, right, to get it out of their heads. They can pray. They can, you know, start taking walks, find out the hobbies that may be, you know, the hobbies that, so when I, one thing that I thought that was very helpful is I love to sing and I went back to taking singing lessons because I, I had to find something that I enjoyed that would give me a little bit of solace that was for me that I love to do. So I went, you know, as an adult, I went back and took singing lessons. So that was a little bit of a reprieve that I was still working on something for myself that, you know, that, that made me feel good about myself. So that was, that was one thing I did. So just thinking about those things that you enjoy, um, I would get myself massages, um, just little things like that. Um, even, even when I was at work, um, and I started thinking, okay, self-care, self-care, taking classes. I mean, there's just a myriad of different things, but I had to take the focus off my alcoholic and, and start thinking about Lily. And then to be honest, Mike, I, I also had to think about my finances. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just getting my life in order that regardless of whatever happened to the alcoholic, I was still going to be whole and that I would still be cared for. And that, that allowed me to have my days, you know, I was able to function day to day and I got better. And then, and that way, if in fact that my alcoholic did come to me, uh, that was the other thing is, you know, just learning about the disease, taking care of myself. I chose to, to remain in the relationship. I, I didn't get a divorce or leave. But the idea being is when, when the time came out into the future, when my alcoholic finally did want to get help, 
I was able to be that arm, you know, that, that support system. And I was firm on, on sure, you know, on, on, on firm ground. Yeah. yeah. I was on firm ground that I was able to better support that person because I don't know if I would have been around if I had not been able to do that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I would have left probably the relationship a lot earlier if I had allowed myself to get so down in the dumps. So is there a point, speaking of, of leaving, because I know I, I get asked that quite a bit, and I'm sure you do too. Is there a point, and if there is, what is that point where you leave the relationship? What would cause you to say to someone, if you were working with someone, you know what, you really need to leave that relationship. What would cause that to happen? First of all, I never say to anyone that they should leave. Because unless you're physically in that person's shoes and you don't know, you know, exactly what's going on, that 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 is one thing I will not do. Now, if somebody is physically harming you and you believe that you are in danger, I would certainly say you need to move, you know, you need to leave. Now, it's up to you if you want to make it permanent and you want to, to divorce that person. Mm-hmm. But as far as... Because leaving and divorcing are not the same thing. That's correct. Yeah, there's the the physical distance and things that you... Because just like you said that you would never tell someone that they need to leave, conversely, you would never tell someone that they need, need to stay physically present in a relationship that is potentially dangerous. Right. So if there's an abusive relationship, I would never say, oh, yeah, take it, stay in the house. No, you need to get out and get to a safe place. But I was thinking... But that's separation. That's dis- distance, not that's, necessarily divorce. Right. I mean, but I I wasn't sure quite which one you're talking about, whether or not it was divorce or separation. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to the divorce situation, that's really a, a personal decision that someone has to make for themselves. And, and I, I can't really say to someone to do that or not do that. Now, I know that when I come and go to meetings, I know that probably on estimation, 50% of the people who come to to the doors, either they've already been divorced, they're in process of divorce, or they're thinking about divorce. And certainly in my case, when I, when I first went, I was thinking about it. But we always say in the program that, hey, when you first come to the program, try not to make any major decisions for the next six months. Mm-hmm. Because you learn a lot, and then you start applying some tools and then, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. And mm-hmm. so we always say, don't, don't make any changes. And so I didn't, I didn't, because some people think, oh, you know, I've got to do one or another and it's, no, you don't, you don't have to. It, it's really a, a personal decision. Sometimes not, not, I've heard it said that sometimes, you know, not making, not making a decision actually is a decision. And sometimes, you know, you you may get to that point, but you don't necessarily need to make that decision right now. And I think that's what you're saying is just give it a little bit of time. Six months from now, you'll do a reassessment and maybe maybe that will be the conclusion that you come to. But give it until you apply some of the tools. You you really shouldn't make a dramatic decision with that without giving it some time. Yeah, that's correct. So I think that when you when you are in a relationship 
with a loved one who's suffering, and we'll, we'll talk specifically about alcoholism because that's that's all I know. I think that there needs to be, I think like in my particular case, the the elephant room in the room was the alcoholism, but early on, I equated alcoholism with my husband, meaning I couldn't make that distinction between the two. My anger was directed towards my husband who happened to be an alcoholic. But as I started learning, working with a counselor, started going to meetings, started, you know, understanding what the medical profession was talking about when it came to the disease of alcoholism, at some point I was able to detach the disease of alcoholism from my husband, Hmm. meaning I loved my husband dearly. I did not want to leave my husband and he happened to have a disease. So then the elephant in the room became the disease and my husband became not necessarily a victim, but he was I was able to detach him from his disease. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so we were able to eventually start working together as a team, both learning about the disease. If he would relapse, we're like, okay, let's just start over again. And then that, and then he started to sense less attitude from me, you know, not feeling shameful, not. Because it wasn't you against your husband it was you and your husband against the disease right we partnered together right it's over here so you were battling him because his disease was co-joined with him yes and so really you were battling him because he was the manifestation of the disease but when you separated that out then you you were attacking the disease which is different than the person and then when you started working together the both of you were 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 against the disease Correct, because there's something that we read in the program that talks about um, learning to have, you know, eventually you'll have compassion for the alcoholic. And I could never understand that because for me, I was always very angry at my alcoholic because I wanted him to stop and he wouldn't, like we were talking about earlier. When I finally was able to detach him from his disease, and then I also went to a lot of open meetings, what we call open AA meetings, so then I was able to hear other alcoholics speak. I'm like, oh, they're just like him. I, I did eventually- By the way, an open AA meeting means that you don't have to be an alcoholic to attend. Anybody can attend, right? as opposed to a closed meeting where you need to be an alcoholic. Some people may not know okay, that difference. Sorry. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's what that is. Okay, so you were at open meetings, so you were going. Yes, and I was able to hear other alcoholics speak and then find a lot of- <clears throat> um, commonality between their stories and my husband's stories eventually over time i i picked up a compassion compassion for the alcoholic recognizing oh oh they have a disease just like my husband oh they're affected just like him and then i was able to it just further enhanced to make me recognize that that you could it's okay to love someone who's an alcoholic it's okay it's okay to love someone who's who has cancer. My my husband didn't choose to be an alcoholic any more than someone chooses to have cancer. But why is it that we have a tendency to come along some alongside of someone who has cancer, you know, typically versus someone, you know, there's a lot of more rage and and unacceptance of the person who has who has an alcohol problem. 
And so I, I had to do a paradigm shift. Because we feel that it's something that they do to themselves. Right, and they have control. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Um, so just a final word. Any, any, what, if you could just, we have one last piece of advice to somebody that is in this position right now that may be listening. What, first step, what, what should they be doing right now? Well, the first step is you have to take care of yourself. You really do. You're not good to anybody, to your children, to your family, even even to the alcoholic, if you're not well. Mm-hmm. And you, you really have to be well. And I, I think that unfortunately I see a lot of people that come, you know, that are, they're in their throes or they're in the middle of a crisis. They, they feel extremely hopeless. And I had made a comment at a meeting once about there is still hope. It, it, even though it may not feel, even though it, it may feel like it's a very hopeless situation, I think that when when you start caring for yourself and, and you start feeling better, emotionally and physically because you're taking that time to take better care of yourself then then you could be a little bit more objective yeah yeah well certainly some great advice and i really appreciate it so lily you know i really appreciate you taking the time tonight and i hope that uh this podcast was helpful to people i know it will be helpful to folks and and so for the person that asked that question tonight hopefully it gave you a little bit better insight is to what you can do going forward. And it's, you know, listen, addiction is a very, very difficult disease, frustrating disease to deal with. I I know with the people I work with, it's just so frustrating at times because people just don't seem to get it. And it's because people don't want to take the simple pieces of of advice that, that work. And I know that in my own particular case, on the alcohol side, um, when I started t- doing these simple things, life got better. And I know on the family side, you know, for for Lily, you see that with people as well. That as as soon as they start taking these pieces of advice, that they get better. Um, just think about what we've discussed here today. And again, Lily, thank you for for doing what you do. And so, as always, I'd like to say that we don't represent any group. You know, Lily and I talked about various groups here tonight, but understand we don't represent those groups. We're just giving you examples. We're just talking about our experience. Um, that's just our opinion, you know, and, and if uh, well, anything that we talked about here tonight doesn't apply to you, then certainly don't use it. We're not in, in encouraging or discouraging to go to any one particular group or use any one particular system. But if there is anything that we have talked about, certainly take that uh, and take the information that you can use for yourself and, and certainly to help others. Because that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way and we try to impart whatever we have learned to help you. And that's all we're trying to do is give you what our experience is. So with that, please visit our Facebook page, Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. Let me know how I'm doing. Let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing. That's what we had here tonight. This was a question that I got from somebody. So we, we do talk about that stuff. We'd love to hear from you. So Take care of yourselves, and we will see you next time. Good night.